Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 20, to the choir master, a Psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May He send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May He remember all of your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May He grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all of your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. And He will answer him from His holy heaven with the saving might of His right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the King. May He answer us when we call. You know, tomorrow, uh, many of us, I am sure, are going to gather with friends and neighbors and uh, perhaps family members. Uh, so many people all across the nation gathering together to celebrate an important milestone in the history of our country, the anniversary of our nation's independence. I mean, to think of all the traditions that we have in the civil sphere to commemorate the birth of our nation, not just the burgers and brats, which I think so many of us uh, appreciate, but also the banners and the flags that you see waving outside of the homes even today, and the parties that are to be had, and even the singing of anthems. And be it at a parade, a festival, or at home with friends, it will be a time of celebration and enjoy, and I think rightfully so. In fact, we hear it at the beginning not only of uh, the, the 4th of July uh, fireworks celebrations, but also the beginning of every baseball game in the season, the singing of our nation's national anthem. My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, it is of thee we sing. But perhaps it might be useful for us to take a step back and ask ourselves, what are the purpose of these symbols in the national life? What are the purpose of these hymns and anthems? Well, in short, they signify and summarize the history and perhaps even the faith of a common people, the virtues, values, and ideals of a nation and its citizenry. Well, I think what we're seeing here is something very simple, uh, similar. What we see at the national level, we find here within the community of the faithful in this particular psalm. You know, for nearly every psalm that we've gone through up to this point, from Psalm 2 to Psalm 18 at least, we have heard of the cry of the Messiah in His distress. And yet now that cry gives way in Psalm 20 to a victory anthem that rejoices in the Lord's salvation. I think what we see in this particular psalm are similar features that we would find in modern national anthems around the world. A prayer for the life of the king, the hoisting of banners, and a concern for the safety and perpetuity of the nation. And though Psalm 20 is not to be applied directly to the United States of America, I think what we see here before us is what we might call the heavenly anthem of the kingdom of God. 
There's three things that I'd like us to consider this evening as we consider uh, the church's national anthem, as it were. First, I'd like us to consider the matter of our defense in verses 1 to 3, the matter of delight in verses 4 to 5, and finally, assurance seen in verses 6 to 9, defense, delight, and assurance. This particular song begins with a benediction. May the Lord bless you or answer you in the day of trouble. I think the immediate question we have to ask ourselves is who is the you here? To be honest with you, before I began uh, studying this passage this week, I've always assumed that the you here is a corporate you, as if uh, the blessing is being pronounced upon the nation as a whole. The people of God under the old covenant, the church in the new. But I think there are certain problems that emerge if we were to take that particular viewpoint because I don't think that what this, this psalm is particularly doing. First of all, in Hebrew, uh, the, the psalmist is not saying, may the Lord answer y'all in the day of trouble. It's a great thing about being a southerner. We actually have a way for saying you in the plural form. Uh, the psalmist is not saying, may the Lord bless y'all. Rather, he's saying, bless me, the Lord bless you. May he answer you, male singular, in the day of trouble. There's a specific individual that is being blessed here. Second thing to notice, if you look in verse 6, and then again in verse 9, we see who the you truly is. Verse 6, now I know that the Lord answers. Who is it that he answers? He answers his anointed one. That word there is Messiah. You see again in verse 9, O Lord, answer and save the king. Certainly makes sense, especially in light of Psalms 1 to 19, where all these other prayers that we've seen in, uh, as we make our way uh, psalm by psalm through the Psalter, uh, these have been specific individual prayers made by the king of the nation, made by the, uh, the, the Lord's anointed one either for himself or praying as a representative of the people of God. And now we see kind of the, the Lord's own response to these other psalms that we've been looking at. May the Lord answer the king. The king who has prayed for deliverance for himself and for the nation. The king who has been under great distress, even as the nations have taken counsel together against the Lord's anointed. Perhaps we are reminded of the British national anthem, God Save the Queen, God Save the King. England's national anthem itself being a prayer for her own magistrate. That is what we see here. Psalm 20 is a prayer by the people for the salvation of her Messiah. May the Lord answer you. May the Lord answer the King in the day of trouble, that day of deep distress and anxiety. When we get to Psalm 22, we'll see what that anxiety and distress looks like. The content of the prayer is given shape here that the Lord would be to His Messiah a mighty fortress. It's significant, I think, here that uh, we see uh, in this opening verse, it's uh, this, this declaration, this acclamation that this is, in fact, the God of Jacob. Why do I say that? The first time you even see that phrase, the God of Jacob, occurs in Exodus chapter 3, when the Lord appears to Moses 
and appoints Moses to be the deliverer of uh, the nation from uh, the land of sin, slavery, and death, that land of Pharaoh. And Moses says, who are you? By what name should I give to the people? And the Lord says, of course, I am who I am. I am the God of Jacob. In the Psalms as well, you see that phrase, God of Jacob, it's used almost synonymously in kind of poetic repetition uh, with the language of fortress and strength. Just as we've seen in prior iterations, as we've looked uh, in previous Psalms, you, you notice how the, the Psalms don't uh, uh, rhyme in terms of sound, they rhyme in terms of thought. And when you look at particular Psalms, like for instance Psalm 46, the God of Jacob is typically put parallel in the following line with that God being the mighty fortress to His people. May that God who is the strong tower defend you and answer you in the day of trouble. May He sustain you and preserve you. Here there is a prayer for a supernatural deliverance of the Lord's Messiah. It's not simply a prayer that the, the king would you know, hoist himself up by his own bootstraps, but rather that deliverance would descend from Zion. And you recall that language of Zion is a, the language of the Lord dwelling in the holy place, in the holy of holies, not simply on earth, but in heaven. We saw that in Psalm chapter 18, as the Lord dwells in his holy temple and he rides upon the clouds as he descends uh, to save his anointed Messiah from the realm of death. Calvin, in commenting on this particular psalm, even notes this. He says, because we cannot rise to heaven, God comes down. That is what we see here. Lord, save from Zion. Descend, ride upon the clouds. This is a prayer for a supernatural salvation. In one sense, we could call this a royal psalm as it could be applied to any of Israel's kings. Uh, much like the British national anthem is always, you know, depending upon who sits on the throne, the, the, the national anthem is either what God saved the queen as it is now and has been for decades. Um, but whenever a king sits on the throne, it's what God saved the king. This is, I think, a psalm that can be prayed for or, uh, under the old covenant was prayed for the kings of Israel. And yet at the same time, I think this is also a psalm that points beyond just any earthly king. There is, in one sense, a, a way in which the psalm anticipates David's greater son. I want you to notice this in verse 3 as the king is described as ascending the mountain to offer those grain offerings and burnt sacrifices. It's certainly a time of great joy. Those, those grain offerings, if you're familiar with the book of Leviticus, are those types of offerings that were voluntary that were offered uh, as a token of thanksgiving for the salvation that the Lord has brought. And the grain offerings were typically these kind of unleavened cakes that were mixed with oil and salt that symbolized the gladness and joy that comes because the Lord has preserved and sustained His people. And you see uh, even the hints of that sustaining power there in verse 2, where it says, May the Lord, uh, the name of the God of Jacob, protect you. That word there means sustain. May He preserve you. There's all this imagery that comes to us from the book of Leviticus with a song that resounds in extolling the One who has given such a great salvation. 
Here the king has offered sacrifices as a token of gratitude for the salvation that has been granted to him. But before such an offering could ever be made, there must first come the burnt offerings. Those burnt offerings were offerings for sin. Quite literally, the Hebrew reads, May the Lord regard all of your burnt offerings as fat. These aren't skinny cows that are being offered up to the Lord of heaven and earth. There is a... Uh, an image here of victory. There's an image of joy and gladness of a supernatural triumph in which the king's life has been preserved where even the sacrifices themselves are rich and fat. This is not a time of famine. This is a time of great feasting. But here's the kicker. You know your Old Testament. The king is not the one who offered the burnt sacrifices. Only in one place do we read of a king doing that, and that's Solomon when the temple is uh, constructed, when it is built and, and consecrated to the Lord. But apart from that, it's the high priest who offers up the burnt sacrifices. And yet it's seen here that it's not the priest who's offering up these sacrifices, it's the king, the Messiah. What priest could ever do that, or what king could ever do that? And when we read Psalm 110, we're given a, a very similar picture here, where David anticipates a day when the king and the priest would be one and the same. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Kingship. But then he says, you are also a priest. Not after the order of Aaron, not after the order of Levi, but a priest after the order of Melchizedek. You read Hebrews chapter 5 to 10, you find that the book of Hebrews is very concerned with answering the reason how it is that Christ can be the high priest when he's not descended from the tribe of Levi. The answer is that he holds a different type of priesthood, a better priesthood, one in which the Old Testament anticipated a type of priesthood that will come to put the Levites out of business because this priest holds the power of an indestructible life. Under the Levitical order, the priests continued to die. and They continued to sin. And so another priest, every generation would have to rise. That's why the book of Hebrews says that the, these sacrifices are unable to make atonement for sin. There's always this need for a, a new man to come into office and to spend years learning what it is to hold office. And now the great news is that Christ has come. Because of his resurrection power, he now has the authority to hold this office in perpetuity forever. As one who does not have to spend time offering sacrifices for his own sins, but who has once for all offered up the sin sacrifice for the nation so effective that he never has to do so ever again. And that sacrifice is not the blood of bulls and goats, but His very own precious blood. I think we have a hint of this same type of king-priest. Not simply David. Not even Solomon. Here we have that Messiah-priest. The one who will offer up those sacrifices on behalf of the nation as the Lord has delivered him miraculously from his enemies and foes. 
And leads us to the second consideration as the prayer by the people for Israel's Messiah is not only for the, the defense and deliverance of the Messiah, but also for his delight. You see that here in verses 4 and 5. May the Lord grant you, may the Lord grant the Messiah his heart's desire. May the Lord grant and fulfill all the plans of the Messiah. And that's what's being brought into view here in verses 4 and 5. And so we ask ourselves, what is it that the Messiah has desired? Psalm chapter 40. Behold, I come to do your will, O God. A body you have prepared for me. Hebrews 10 actually cites that particular psalm and says it is Jesus who has spoken these very words. Jesus has come to fulfill the office to which He has been appointed from before the foundation of the earth. And when we read the Gospels, Jesus speaks repeatedly of His heart's desire. That particular desire being that His mission might be fulfilled. That He would come to fulfill all that the law and the prophets had spoken of Him. That He would come to bring judgment. More pointedly, that He would come to bear the judgment. Over and over again, we read in the Gospels, Jesus says over and over, for this reason I have come. He comes to bear the judgment that He might bring salvation to His people. Matthew chapter 9, I have not come to call the righteous, but the reason I have come is to call sinners to repentance. Uh, uh, John chapter 10, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. John chapter 12, I have not come to judge the world yet, but to save the world. Perhaps we're familiar with this verse more than most. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent His Son into the world for what purpose? That the world through Him might be saved. So Jesus' own high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, as the great high priest, what is it that He says, Father, this is what I desire, that those whom You have given Me might be where I am, that they might see My glory. On the night of His betrayal, Jesus says, oh, I delight to partake of this with you. I've delighted to partake of this last meal with you, even as that last meal institutes the inauguration of the new covenant in His blood. See, when the church prays that God would fulfill His Messiah's deepest longings, the church is praying that Christ would save His own, and that we would see Christ in His exaltation. We, we read in Scripture the very things that Jesus longs for. We read of Christ's own deepest desires. Verse 5, May we sing for joy at this salvation and in His name hoist our banners and flags. There's that imagery that we see that we are so familiar with in even our own national sphere, in our own civil sphere. The raising of the flags and banners all throughout the country. What does the raising of a flag symbolize? It's a symbol of victory. It's what, what the armies would do in the midst of battle. What is it that Neil Armstrong does? When he lands on the moon, he plants the American flag, claiming the moon as it were. As he says, for all mankind. But he does plant an American flag, so it's kind of interesting. Anyways, but here we see the hoisting of banners, the waving of flags, the singing of an anthem 
praying that the Lord's Messiah would be delivered. God save the King. And here the the saints extol the Lord for the victory He has brought through His Messiah and praise that He will continue to fulfill all of His Son's deepest longings. So this prayer for the King's delight gives way to a full-hearted assurance on the part of the people. You see that here in verses 6-9. to Again, if we continue to read the Psalms in their order, and I think there's a reason why these Psalms are put in a particular order. It's, it's much like reading, I've mentioned this before, like look, looking through the hymnal. You realize that the, it's not just kind of a loose anthology of hymns in one sense. That you'll notice that there are subjects in which the, uh, those particular hymns are arranged, the opening hymns being about God's perfections and attributes, and then to God as Trinity, and then to His governance and creation and providence, and then to the work of Christ, and so on and so forth. And I think we see a certain rhythm here to the Psalms as well. Even as Psalm 1 begins by saying, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his confidence. He'll be like the mighty oak who shall never be moved. And we find that that blessed man, of course, is the Son, the one whom the Lord has appointed on Zion's hill. Even as the the nations take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed, the Lord tells His Son to rule in the midst of His enemies. And yet from Psalm 3 to Psalm 18, almost exclusively, perhaps with the exception of Psalm 8 and Psalm 19, they are all prayers of the Messiah in deep distress and anguish. Saying, Lord, you have promised salvation. When will it come? In one sense, we see that Psalm 20 is the capstone to this particular selection of psalms. That the Lord has, in fact, answered His Messiah and has brought deliverance. The Lord has come to deliver supernaturally. And here in this psalm, the heavenly anthem resounds at the salvation that the Lord has brought to His King. The Gentiles might boast in their earthly power. They boast in the battle chariot and the war horse, but not Israel. Here the nation proclaims that their boast is in the one who has made heaven and earth. Verse 7, our song is in the name of the Lord. The Lord has heard the, the cries of His servant. He has caused the nations to tumble and fall. The Lord has answered the prayers of His Messiah. And He has lifted up His Son from the grave. But not only His Son, not only His Messiah. Because He has delivered His Messiah, it is through the Messiah that He will deliver the nation as well. It is through the Messiah that He will deliver His church. You see here in this final verse, O Lord, save the King. May He answer us when we call. The question we have is, may who answer us? Are we asking that the Lord would answer us? Or that the King would answer us? In one sense, of course, we would say it's both, but the context here is, O Lord, save the King. May the King answer us when we call. See, because God has saved His anointed one, He has now appointed Christ to be the source of our salvation, to be the instrument of our deliverance. And we see as we read in the New Testament the great and glorious news. Those glad tidings that Christ was indeed saved and that salvation of His was found in His resurrection from the dead. The Lord would not allow His anointed one to see corruption. 
The Lord would not allow the grave to take hold of him forever. Now he, being raised from the dead, holds the power over death. He himself possesses the power of an indestructible life as both king and as our high priest. As Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ's resurrection certifies our future resurrection. Because God has, in fact, saved the king, the king will come and he will save. Say to those who are fearful hearted, do not be afraid. The Lord your God is strong in his loving arm and he will come and he will save, Isaiah tells us in chapter 35. O God, save the king. May the king answer us in our day of distress. And Calvin, in commenting on this particular psalm, writes this. He says, it is my judgment that the purpose of the Holy Spirit was to give the church a prayer which is to be used in any time of danger. David's temporal kingdom is but a figure of another kingdom whose government is far more excellent and on which the joy and happiness of the church depends. The psalm, therefore, stirs up the children of God to continued prayer on behalf of Christ's kingdom. What is it that we are taught to pray in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come. And here we see an elaboration of that particular petition. Psalm 20 being a heavenly anthem that commemorates the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. A hymn that celebrates the triumph of Christ by His resurrection from the dead and His ascension on high. The good news we have here this evening is this, that Psalm 20 tells us of the reign of grace. Just as sin entered the world through death and therefore reigned by death, now grace has come to reign by the righteousness of Christ, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5. Where at the cross, Jesus disarmed rulers and powers and nailed our sins to the cross that death might no longer reign over us such that now we are given the promise that the God of Israel will soon crush Satan under our feet. Because the sting of death has been shattered and death will soon be swallowed up in sweet, sweet victory. Having been set, from the, set free from the chains of sin, that church now is called to commemorate that spiritual liberty and sing the heavenly anthem of the victory of Christ. We might celebrate the birth of this nation once a year, but as the church we get to celebrate the establishment of Christ's kingdom 52 times a year as we gather every Lord's Day to commemorate what Christ has done for His nation, for His kingdom that transcends every tongue, tribe, race, and nation as the Lord Jesus from Heaven, even now through the preaching of His Word, gathers in His elect from the furthest corners of the earth. And as the church gathers together every Lord's Day, our very prayer is that the Lord would answer the prayer of His Messiah. That He would defend, nurture, and protect His kingdom. And that the Messiah Himself would hear us and answer us when we call. Let us consider this psalm to be the church's national anthem. Let us pray.
Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that you would protect and defend your kingdom. We pray that you would fulfill the deepest desires of your Son, that we would be delivered from our sin and misery through the work of your Son, and in one day that we would see your Son reigning in his glory. Preserve us that we might with joy look forward with great anticipation to that day. And in the interim, we pray that you would continue to draw in your elect from the furthest corners of the earth. That the gates of hell would not prevail against the growth and expansion of the kingdom of the Messiah. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.